From the untamed wilderness to the freshwater shores of the greatest lakes, Michigan's Upper Peninsula is an outdoor lover's paradise and the country's best kept secret. My name is Kristen Ogenini, a lifelong youper and the newest host of the iconic UP Outdoors television program, Discovering, and it's my honor to carry on the tradition of the best outdoors storytellers of this region. So sit back, listen, and discover what it's like to live and play in this amazing place we call the UP. Today's Discover the UP podcast is brought to you by Big Valley Ford, Dodge Chrysler Jeep in Ewan, Michigan, BAM Tools, Hardcore Outfitters of Iron Mountain, and Cooking Wild Seasonings. Welcome to the Discover the UP podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Ogenimi. So this morning, I was watching the local TV6 News, and I saw that the Michigan DNR is telling people to stay off the ice on Little Bay to Knock, and people went through the ice over the weekend. I did see that screenshot of a video of people who had broken through on Saturday or Sunday, but according to some other Facebook reports, um, they were in a place where no one should be on a snowmobile anyways. I'm sure the ice conditions are varied across Little Bay to Knock, um... You should always check the ice conditions yourself before you go out there or check with local bait shops or other anglers um, before venturing out, especially if you're on a snowmobile or ATV. So you better be safe than sorry. Um, it sounds like it costs a lot of money, 2000 to $10,000 to pull a snowmobile or ATV out of the ice. And I don't know anybody running around with that much money in their pocket to just dump into the water. <laughs> So anyways, for reference, we're talking about Little Bay to Knock, which is the bay that stretches from Rapid River south to Escanaba, where it opens up into Lake Michigan. I was actually out there on Friday, just a few days ago, for a story. There was about 8 to 9 inches of solid, clear-looking ice to me. I thought it looked pretty good. I was out there with Uper Gold guy Tristan Mishker. Um, he said that the ice conditions just got that good. That that cold snap that we had a week ago or so really, you know, froze and locked the bay up. Um, and we're really hoping that ice stays there. But, you know, it's looking kind of iffy. But we do have some colder temperatures coming up overnight during the week. So hopefully the ice conditions continue to improve or get better because it's looking like they're not so great right now. But anyways, <laughs> yeah, it's just been a terrible winter for ice, for snow, for any really outdoor activities. Okay, back out to Little Bay to Knock. Um, Little Bay to Knock is a walleye fish factory. So this is why I'm out there for a story. It's a year-round destination for walleye anglers, especially ice fishing. So like I said, Friday I was out there with Uper Gold Guide Tristan Mishker. Um, we hit the ice about 6 a.m. We were in the North Bay we got out there, I think, pretty much before anybody else. By the time the sun rose, there were hubs and portable shacks all over the ice. I mean, there was a ton of people out there. And then it rained all day. I mean, it was kind of like a little yucky when we got out there, but then it, we got some pretty good rain. Not really a heavy rain, but regardless, it's raining in January, which isn't right. We did have one perch on the ice that I thought was going to start swimming away on the ice. There was so much water on top of the ice. So I can see how that could have also helped to deteriorate the ice overnight in some places on the bay. 
Little Betanoc is 30,000 acres, and I'm sure the ice conditions vary across it. I actually looked at Blades Bait and Tackle's Facebook page um, yesterday. They posted that the ice on Little Betanoc, north of the Narrows of Gladstone, has anywhere from 3 inches to 11 inches of ice. So, that's quite a difference. <laughs> Um, again, if you're looking for an ice report, Blades Facebook page is a really good place to start. They are located in Kipling. Um, they're out on the ice, it sounds like, all the time. So, um, and they're checking with other anglers about what those ice conditions are. So back to fishing on Friday. I keep circling back to ice conditions. Now circling back to my actual fishing adventure. Um, this was my first time fishing or filming Little Beta Knock for the show. Brian Whitens, the previous show producer, lives near the area, so he covered stories here, and I stuck to the north. I live about two and a half to three hours north of Escanaba. So I was excited to get out on the ice and catch a giant walleye through the ice. Or more so, film one of them catching a giant walleye through the ice. Unfortunately, the fishing was slow, but we didn't get skunked. I've had many days of filming ice fishing where we have been skunked and I walk away with no story. So I'm very thankful that was not the case, that we had good ice, and I'll have that story coming up in a couple weeks on Discovering. Someday though, I'm going to put together a show of all the times I've gone out filming ice fishing and we caught zero fish. Sometimes not even a single bite. It will be the fishing, no catching show. That will be a reality show. People I film always ask how many fish I need for a show, and my answer is, I only need one. I don't ever want to give the illusion that it's a piece of cake to go out and catch a ton of fish on any given day, because it's not. So I like to show the days that you have to grind it out to catch even one fish. Usually there's more story in that anyways. It does make filming more fun and exciting though when the fishing is hot. When the fish aren't biting, I'm having to think to myself, how can I make this a story? What else can I film? What questions should I ask my angler? And then I really have to work to get a story. It's a whole lot easier if the fish cooperate. Kind of like last night's show. Last night, I had a story with the ladies from Wisconsin Women Fish and Women on Ice. They had a couple weekends in a row ice fishing here in the UP in mid-January during that cold snap that we had. Sadly, I only had time to join them for one of the days. My weekends do fill up fast, and yes, I work most weekends because that's when the people I need to film can get out. So on this day, it was cold and the fishing was slow, and again, it's more than catching fish and the few we caught gave me enough for a story. I think with those ladies, even if we didn't catch a single fish, I could make a story out of them. One of those fish, though, I was super excited about. Barb Carey, the leader of the group, pulled a really nice burbot out of the ice. I've been on three prior shoots in the last few years just for burbot, and this is the first time I've ever seen one up close in real life. And if the ice holds out, I'm going back to that spot to catch one for myself. <laughs> it's on my bucket list for sure. So go and check out that story. It just posted last night on my YouTube channel or on my website, discovertheup.com. 
Oh, and I want to give a shout out to Stateline Automotive in Crystal Falls, who quickly fixed my punctured tire on my way out to film that morning with Wisconsin Women Fish. Somebody must have hit a deer or something on the highway that morning because I ran over what looked like part of a bumper. I was avoiding another piece of debris on the road and ran that over. And I had a gut feeling that my tire was going to go flat, and sure enough, when I got to the stoplight in Crystal Falls, my dashboard started dinging and lit up, and I could see the tire pressure was dropping on my right front tire. And I looked across the road, and there was Stateline Automotive, and thankfully they were able to get me right in there. So, thank you, thank you, thank you. There's never a dull moment traveling across the UP for work. That's for sure. So going back to watching the news, I also seen that the Heikilunta Teal Lake Ice Fishing Derby in Nagani has been postponed. I don't know when. I don't think they showed or told when. Um, that's kind of been the story of our winter. A lot of events have been canceled or postponed due to lack of snow or lack of ice. It's been warm, dry, exactly what they predicted because of the El Nino year that we're having. And it's really disappointing. Really disappointing. The snowmobile trails are poor to non-existent, and I really feel for all the businesses that rely on winter tourism. The snowmobile rental shops, ski hills, restaurants, bars, gas stations, and even the people who plow snow for side gigs or shovel roofs. There's a reason we call snow up here white gold. Um, we need it. We need it for that winter tourism. I mean, you don't even need snowshoes to stomp around the woods right now. I was out with a group of guys rabbit hunting over the weekend, and it was easy going through the woods. Um, that's a story for another day. So we have at least a couple more months of winter yet, whatever winter is going to look like for us, and we are going to have to get creative with how to get out and enjoy it. And also how we support our local businesses to, you know, help them out through this season. So, almost enough of me talking. On last week's show, I had a quick story about Arctic grayling released in a couple UP lakes. They were surplus fish from the DNR fish hatchery in Marquette. They were pretty much stocked in a couple lakes since they had them and to give UP anglers a chance to catch these unique fish. And they are also catch and release only. And it'll say in the interview those couple lakes that they were stocked in. They won't reproduce, and I'm not sure how long they will live. That is something I did forget to ask. Um, Arctic grayling disappeared from the state decades ago, and the Michigan DNR has made multiple attempts in restoring the fish to its native range, which we will hear more about. So even though this interview pertains mostly to the Lower Peninsula, it does have a couple UP questions and ties. There were once Arctic grayling in the UP, but are they native to the UP? And the other tie being that they're raising the broodstock up here in Marquette. I learned a lot of interesting things from Ed Aish, the DNR Assistant Chief of Fisheries, who I interviewed about Arctic grayling. And I mean, I learned a lot. I found it all quite fascinating. I knew nothing about Arctic grayling before this. Now I feel I know a little something. So we talk about the history of the fish, what led to their extirpation, why the DNR thinks this latest recovery attempt will work, improving water quality and habitat in the state, and why they feel now is the right time. So without further ado, here's that full interview. We, we actually believe that Arctic grayling are not native to the UP. 
Oh, uh, okay. yeah. So, so they were Arctic grayling were king in the northern Lower Peninsula cold water streams prior to their extirpation in the uh, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, and and uh, the the populations that existed in the UP, uh, we we believe were uh, were planted or stocked fish up there. When do you think they were planted or stocked? I you know I don't I don't have any records of when they were stocked, but the, the actually the last population that existed in Michigan was in the Otter River in um, Ontonagon County, um, but that that is a population that we're quite confident was was a stocked population. I have to jump in and pause this interview for a quick second. Ed misspoke, and the Otter River is actually in Houghton County. I had a couple people let me know that after the Discovering Program aired. So, Otter River, Houghton County, back to the interview. So, I know there's going to be like a press release done soon about the Arctic grayling, but what has the DNR been doing to restore that population? Sure. So, so uh, we're currently um, eyeball deep in what, what we're calling the Michigan Arctic Grayling Initiative, um, and that is a, a partnership um, that includes, gosh, it's close to fifty different partner groups now, individual people and and partner groups. Um, and the, and the two foundational partners for that initiative are the uh, Little River Band of Ottawa Indians and and Michigan DNR Fisheries Division. And uh, it's a it's an initiative that was put together to uh, kind of take one I'm going to say probably one last swing at trying to reintroduce uh, grayling into Michigan, um, and uh, we're we're coming at it from a very different approach this time. Uh, so uh, here's an interesting fact: grayling are in the lower 48. Grayling are only native to Michigan and Montana. Uh, something related to the way the glaciers receded. Um, so. Uh, Montana never fully lost their, their population. Uh, they were greatly reduced, but they weren't extirpated like they were in Michigan. Um, so, so they have been for years have been trying to bolster the numbers of Arctic grayling in their streams. And, uh, for a long time, they ran into the same roadblocks that we did. They were stocking more advanced life stages like fingerlings and yearlings and not having any success. Um, and somewhere along the way, they stumbled onto the idea that, um, that they think that there was a a key early life stage imprinting period that was being missed uh, because they were going into the into the systems as as older older fish at at more advanced life stages. So what they did is they they came up with this idea of using remote site incubators or RSIs, and that's basically a a five gallon bucket uh, that's put right in in the stream where where you want the fish where you're trying to reintroduce the fish, and it's fed by a, a long chunk of PVC uh, pipe that goes way upstream to, to the point where uh, there's enough um, hydraulic head that water will flow through the pipe into the bottom of the, the RSI and create an upwelling flow. Uh, so it's essentially an upwelling incubator. So what they did is they put these um, RSIs in the, in the streams and stocked the RSIs with eggs that were close to ready to hatch. So fertilized and partially developed Arctic grayling eggs and let the water flow through. And when they hatch, um, Arctic grayling don't spend very much time uh, in the gravel in a natural situation. They have uh, their small eggs, so they have a very small yolk sac. So soon after they after they hatch, they emerge and start feeding on their own. Um, and so so they, they tried putting these eggs in these RSIs, eggs hatch, they kind of come out with the water and boom, they're instantly in the in the receiving water where you intend them to be. 
Um, and they've had some success with that. Um, there's actually one, one stream when we started this process back in 2016, I think it's Ruby river, I think is what it's called in Montana. And they had, I believe at that point had six or seven, uh, years of documented natural reproduction where there was none before. Um, so there's probably upwards of 10 years now of natural reproduction in that system. So that it, it actually showed that it, that it worked. Uh, so we're, we're hopeful, uh, that, that they stumbled onto the answer, missing that very key early life stage imprinting uh, period, and that we uh, we're cautiously optimistic that we can maybe uh, uh, duplicate their results here in Michigan streams as well. Today's Discover the UP podcast is brought to you by Cooking Wild Seasonings. Cooking Wild Seasonings, flavor and meat, just mix, heat, and eat. That simple, you bet. Now even easier with our new grab-and-go four-pack cartons. Four combinations to choose from. Whitetail Hunter, Deer Camp, Summer Sausage, and Fresh Sausage. Make it fresh, make it yours. Make it easy. Grab a four-pack today. Available at various locations, including all Chris Northwoods neighborhood store locations. Find out more about Cooking Well Seasonings at cookingwellseasonings.com. So we we actually uh, brought our first eggs back to Michigan to start our brood in uh, 2019. And, and, uh, when you, when you found a brood stock like this, you want to have a minimum of three year classes so that you can cross one year class with another. So you can avoid, uh, crossing, potentially crossing siblings. It's just from a genetic standpoint, not something you want to do. Um, so we actually went to, um, Alaska, um, our, our, uh, counterparts up at the, with the Alaska department of fish and game. I, I reached out to, um, to their fish production program manager and explained what it is that we wanted to do. And and they were um, open to the idea of providing eggs for us. Not something they normally do for a production situation, but given given what our goal was, which is is uh, to to reestablish a, a self sustaining population, they thought, wow, that's a pretty that's a pretty lofty goal and something that we want to support. So so they said, sure, bring your people up and you can help out with the egg take and and take the eggs back with you. So we did that, uh, and we brought the first eggs back in 2019. And of course, soon after 2019 came the pandemic. Uh, so everything got shut down in 2020 uh, in Alaska. So there was no 2020 egg take. Um, and Alaska even went so far as to hit the pause button on their Arctic grayling production program, which really was concerning to us. We thought, wow, if they're if they're going to hit that pause button for the long for any length of time. Our, our program could be back to ground zero. Um, so we reached out to them in, in 2021 and, and they said, well, we're not gonna produce any, any grayling for our own programs, uh, but recognizing the value of, of what you're trying to do, we will collect eggs for your program and ship them to you. <clears throat> so, so they did, I mean, even though they didn't have their own program, which is really a big deal, it's a significant undertaking to go out there and spend all that time and effort to, uh, to collect the, the adult brood stock and then, and then do it, actually do the egg take. Um, so we, we got the eggs back uh, to Michigan and then went again in 2022 and got our third uh, and final lot of future brood. And when we bring them back, they have to go through a, a fish health testing program. So we bring them to, uh, or we brought them to Odin's uh, quarantine facility, Odin State Fish Hatchery near Petoskey, as a, a quarantine facility that we outfitted with a, a UV filter to protect the receiving water from any potentially harmful pathogens that might come back with these eggs or come in with these eggs. 
Um, and once they were through with three successive tests over the course of about 14 to 16 months, they were deemed to be safe to ship up to Marquette. So that now that all three year classes are up at Marquette State Fish Hatchery. How are they doing up there? <laughs> they're they're doing great. I mean, they're 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 big. Um, the the 2019 year class are probably in the 14 to 16 inch range. Gosh, the the rearing at Odin, the early rearing went just remarkably smoothly. Um, you know, we had a few issues once we got them to Odin when we moved them out, to, or excuse me, got them up to Marquette when we moved them out to the outside raceways, which is not surprising when you abruptly change a water source on fish like that, going from well water inside to to Cherry Creek water outside. Um, they struggled with that a little bit the first year, but it was because we moved them out when there was too much of a difference in, in temperature. Uh, so the water was pretty cold already by the time we moved them out. Uh, so subsequent years, uh, we moved them out. Um, when the temperatures are pretty close to the same inside and out. And they're just, they're taking it great. They're they are pretty easy fish to work with. We're pretty happy with that. How big does the Arctic grayling get? I mean, what is what kind of about the species there? You know, you're probably not going to see a lot of fish above 17, 18 inches. Uh, you know, in the hatchery situation, obviously, it's very different. They've got all the food they need. And, you know, we're throwing food at them every day, several times a day. In the wild, you know, if you're catching a, 15, 16 inch grayling, you're, you're catching a pretty, a pretty good fish. And so you have already stocked some of these. We have, um, not, not as part of the reintroduction initiative necessarily, more as a byproduct of it. Uh, so when, when you start a brood stock, you always start with, with, uh, more eggs than, than you think you're going to need to account for disease issues or mechanical, uh, problems and that sort of thing. And there's a lot of ways that you can lose fish if you, if you aren't careful. Um, but they, they did really well. So we had surplus fish. So, so we actually stocked fish in two UP lakes, uh, 300 went into, um, Pentagore Lake in, in, uh, Houghton County. Uh, and I think it was 400 went into West Johns Lake in Luce County. Uh, and then a little over 1100 went into Pine Lake in Manistee County. Uh, so, so the fish that were stocked in those lakes can, can be, um, anglers can, try and catch them, but they're strictly catch and release. Uh, there, there is no legal harvest of, of, uh, Arctic grayling in Michigan. Um, and you know, I can't say necessarily that there was, uh, anything extra special about those lakes that, that we chose to stock them in there other than their, their, um, temperature profile and everything and water chemistry was, was appropriate for salmonids, you know, for trout. Um, so, so we, uh, Kind of like the idea of putting some in the in the UP because the UP is is not going to be part of this uh, reintroduction effort because one of the one of the caveats for a stream to be considered for reintroduction is it has to be within the uh, native range of Arctic grayling in Michigan and we don't believe they were native to the UP so this gets this gets the UP uh, in the grayling game um, and and uh, Pine Lake is is um, you know one of our foundational partners is. Uh, Little River Band of Ottawa Indians, uh, and this is down in in their area. Um, so it's a, it's a lake that was suggested by them, and we thought, yeah, that's that's an excellent option. Uh, we know that people get out there and fish, so it gives a great opportunity for for our anglers to, you know, try and go out and catch, even though they can't harvest, but to try and go out and catch a a, a grayling early on in the program. And when do you expect to start stocking them? I guess down in the in the native streams downstate. Yeah, that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question, isn't it? Um, so, so our the two thousand nineteen we got things are a little bit um, 
turned on their ear because of that that year that we missed with mm-hmm. 2020. So the 2019 year class, they're old enough that they're sexually mature and they're producing gametes, uh, viable gametes. Uh, but the 2021s are are just getting there. So it's likely that the first year of any significant numbers will be probably spring of 2025 uh, is when we'll be putting eggs in those remote site incubators. Okay. And and we're the streams that we're looking at. You know, we had um, a couple of caveats that we put out there. We didn't we didn't want just the folks in the partnership to be identifying where these fish might be go going as uh, or at least the candidate streams. Um, so uh, we had a couple of caveats. One, it has to be within uh, the native range, and it has to be a stream that was known to have held self-sustaining populations of grayling before they were extirpated. Um, and number two, uh, it has to be a stream that has or a, a watershed that has local support for this initiative. Um, so we said, we're not going to pick them, but we want local units of government. Uh, we want township boards. We want county boards. We want sportsmen's groups to to nominate streams that they would like to see Arctic grayling go in. We, we need to know that there's local support. Um, so the streams we're looking at right now, we've got um, the upper and maybe a little bit of the middle stretch of the Manistee uh, River watershed, um, the Boardman River watershed, um, west branch of the Maple near Pelston, and uh, the Jordan, and finally the Osable, which actually used to be like the destination fishery for for grayling before they were extirpated. Um, so we were we were glad to see the Osable get uh, get nominated. Today's Discover the UP podcast is brought to you by Bam Tools. My friend Andrew wants to help support this podcast, but didn't know how he should advertise his business, so here goes. BAM Tools is a small, family-owned, and operated business out of Ewan, Michigan, but they cover the entire UP, delivering tools to all sorts of businesses. Inside the tool truck are hand tools, power tools, automotive shop supplies, and so much more. I should tell Andrew I need a new Grizzly cooler, preferably blue. BAM Tools is also a tech tire supplies distributor, and Travis is the guy behind the wheel of that truck. So if you see Andrew or Travis in a BAM Tools truck, tell them thanks for supporting this podcast. Why is it important to, you know, for the DNR and the public to bring back these species that we had once, you know, lost? Yeah, it's, you know, the Arctic grayling are, are they're, they're an iconic species. They are. I mean, they've got that just absolutely gorgeous dorsal and that, that fin up on their back that looks like a sail. Uh, they've got these just beautiful iridescent purple and blue and silver uh, colors. Um there's just there's just something about grayling and and they they played such a major role in Michigan's fishery history uh, prior to their extirpation that you know there there were a lot of things that led to their to their extirpation including habitat degradation and you know we we think that that habitat degradation is is not a thing anymore uh, it's it's uh, ecologically and environmentally things have gotten so much better uh, in Michigan's trout streams than what they were following the the uh, deforestation that happened in the in the uh, 1800s. Uh, so so it it feels like the time is right. I mean, we've been trying this for a long time. There's been multiple efforts uh, up to this point, all unsuccessful. Uh, but there's have have been multiple efforts to try and bring them back to Michigan. And 
you know, we, we think that the we think the time is right with the systems, and we think that the methodology this time is far advanced from what we've done in the past. Uh, so it, it feels like the time is right, and it's culturally they're significant to Michigan because of the uh, their uh, major role that they played in Michigan fisheries. But they're they're also very culturally significant to Native American tribes in Michigan as well. Uh, they were a, a a significant source of food for them uh, when they when they swam in large numbers in, in Michigan's rivers. So, um, you know, for both, both, uh, state licensed fishers and, and, and for, um, uh, for, for the, the native American partners that we have in this, uh, it's a, it's, it's an important thing for us to try and, and see, uh, get them back in Michigan waters. Would the bringing back the Arctic grayling, would that have any impact on the, the fish species that are currently in these river systems at all or? No, uh, probably probably not. But we're looking really close at the at the species composition that's in the systems that we're looking at. Um, there, there's research that's that was done at Michigan State University to try and identify um, or try, try and figure out how how much of a of a problem might it be to have brown trout or brook trout uh, in in you know fairly high densities in these receiving in these streams that we're looking at, um, and it turns out that. Brown trout are um, brown trout are bullies. Um, they don't want. Uh, they're either going to eat or they're going to chase out other fish that are trying to be in their systems. So, you know, we're we're going to be looking for systems that don't uh, or stream stretches that don't have high densities of brown trout. We're not going to go in and remove brown trout uh, or remove brook trout to make room for for the grayling. That's we've committed to that. We won't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, th- those brown trout and brook trout fisheries are highly valued by by our anglers with good reason. We value them as well. Um, so, so it's not we won't do any removals, but we will look for areas that are that are are have lower brown trout densities. It turns out brook trout are not a problem. Uh, they're happy to hang out together and and swim in the same water and just they'll actually hang out in groups together where they're kind of intermingle, which is kind of an interesting thing. That is interesting. <laughs> yeah, and they found the same thing in in Montana. Uh, they actually found that in their streams in Montana, um, the the streams that had high brook trout densities, that's where the that's where the grayling uh, did the best. Um, you know, so whatever it is that brook trout need, um, you know, physically and and chemically in the water and biologically in the water, it's it turns out that grayling need largely the same the same things. Uh, so that that was kind of an interesting thing. You know, and and as we go through this, we're as, as much success as they've had in in Montana. You know, we're we're being cautious. I said we're earlier we're cautiously optimistic because our streams are very different uh, from Montana streams. Uh, their streams are much more high gradient, so they're faster, um, and and they have uh, higher productivity. There's more nutrients in their streams, so there's more stuff for them to eat. You know, in in northern uh, Lower Michigan, those streams all run through um, through sand. Um, you know, that's just that's the substrate that's there. Just that's what the geology of Michigan is. Um, so we don't have the level of productivity that they have. That's not to say that grayling can't do well. Obviously, they did fantastically well prior to their extirpation. Um, so optimistic, but not, it's not a deadlock guarantee yet. Okay, wonderful. Um. That's really my questions for the Arctic grayling. Is there anything else you wanted to add to that topic there, the grayling? You know, there's there's still there's still a lot of research going on. Uh, some of the different partner groups are, uh, you know, as I mentioned, we've got nearly 50 partner groups. Some of them are are uh, 
I don't mean this in a, in a to be derogatory at all, are, are kind of there for moral support. Uh, and and others are very actively involved and and you know they've got they've got folks out there in the water that are that are doing habitat measurements and and that sort of thing. So so that's something that's ongoing. Uh, we're spending a lot of time looking at at both biotic and abiotic factors. The biotic factors being you know what what other species are present, um, and the abiotic being you know what are what are peak summer temperatures, uh, water temperatures, because that's a as as climate change continues to be a thing, that's a concern. Um, they look at the amount of pool, riffle, and 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 run habitat. You know the amount of gravel versus sand, the amount of emergent vegetation. You know that can provide, uh, um, I'll call it nursery area for for the fry to kind of hide in uh, soon after they emerge from the RSIs. Um, and and uh, uh, you know how, how much large woody debris. Uh, so there's a lot of a lot of effort going into uh, trying to identify the stream stretches that are going to give us the absolute greatest chance of success uh, as we enter into this. Because, um, you know, we're really, what we're looking for here, we're, we're not hoping that this is going to be a long-term hatchery project. Mm-hmm. Um, our intent is to develop self-sustaining populations, so naturally reproducing populations within the the um, historic range of Arctic grayling. Uh, so, so that's, you know, we... I've been asked before, how will you know if you've been successful? Uh, and and that's the answer right there. If we're seeing natural reproduction happening and we get to a point where we're saying, okay, we can back off now. We don't have to stock anymore. I mean, don't get me wrong. This isn't going to be a sprint. It's going to be a marathon for sure. But we don't see this being a, a, a decades and decades long hatchery stocking effort. Now, those ones that you um, put in the lakes up here in the UP, I imagine those won't, um, you don't, expect those to be naturally reproducing no we don't no. we don't yeah and and we will as time as time goes on you know we're going to have to produce subsequent um year classes of brood, future brood stock you know out of the ones that we have now because as i said it's not gonna it's not a sprint we don't expect this to be done in five or six years um so we'll be producing new uh year classes of brood stock and and We'll do it the same way as we did the others. We'll take extra eggs to just just in case, which means that as a byproduct of the of the brood program, there will be some surplus fish that that uh, that can be stocked in in uh, various lakes across the state. Today's Discover the UP podcast is brought to you by Big Valley Ford Dodge Chrysler Jeep in Ewan, Michigan. When I'm traveling around the UP, I'm surprised and not surprised by how often the vehicle in front of me has a Big Valley sticker on it. Big Valley Ford Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram is located in the tiny town of Ewan on the west end of the Upper Peninsula. People from across the region buy their new and used cars and trucks from Big Valley and they drive all the way back to Ewan to get them serviced. Which reminds me, I'm probably due for an oil change myself. I'm on my fourth new Ford vehicle with over half a million miles under their tires, so I'm probably due for a tire rotation too. Big Valley is a one-stop shop for all your vehicle needs with a full service department, parts department, and body shop. I got caught in a hailstorm once with my last truck and they made it look just like new. If you're looking for a new or used vehicle, go see them in Ewan or check out their inventory online at bigvalley.biz. It's something I didn't talk about with the grayling is that there's you know three basic reasons that are believed to have led to their extirpation. Um, so so there's uh, 
I already mentioned the the habitat degradation that happened associated with the deforestation that was going on in the in the 1800s. Um, and you know the construction industry. I mean, we were that was when we were really starting to industrialize as a nation. And the the building material of choice then was wood. And Michigan was holy smokes. We have an endless supply of wood. We'll never get to the end of it. And far sooner than they thought they would, they they cut Michigan from coast to coast, um, and and did tremendous damage to the aquatic um, systems in in the process. I mean, it caused all sorts of uh, erosion from the trees, the, the roots of the trees not being there anymore to hold the the soil in place. And and you know they they were a buffer strip wasn't. If you said something about a buffer strip, they'd look probably would look at you like you were from Mars. Because I mean, they they cut right up to the edges of the streams, right up to the edges of the banks, uh, and and then you know you had to get those logs, those saw logs, to the mills. And quickest way to do that was to float them down the rivers, and and that did damage. To, you know, would scour the bottoms of the um, the the rivers and and do damage to the spawning reds for for trout and and grayling and and other species. Um, and and they went beyond that. You know, the, the rivers naturally tend to be kind of have a sinuosity to them. They tend to tend to have meanders, and those meanders are very valuable to fish. They create various different types of habitat, uh, but they're not valuable to somebody trying to float a raft of logs down a river to a mill. Um, so so they were actually getting in there and, and digging channels um, to straighten the the streams. Uh, so, so all sorts of damage like that was done and it happened fast. It happened just incredibly rapidly. Um, so you had that and you had the overfishing. Um, so the, the, there were grayling are, are known to be a pretty easy fish to catch. Even I was able to catch some on a fly rod this past summer in Alaska. So that tells you that they're pretty easy to catch. Uh, and, and there were folks that would come up from large metropolitan areas like Chicago and Detroit uh, by train and they would come up to towns like grayling, uh, and, and they would fish for for days and and they would pack those grayling up either they would either salt them down or pack them in ice in barrels and ship them by train back to these metropolitan areas that they came from and then sell them in in uh, fish markets so it was essentially like a the early days of of commercial fishing uh, but but happening inland um so between those two things and the introduction of uh brown trout and rainbow trout in northern lower peninsula streams we created we created predation and competition uh, for resources that were not as good as they were before because of the environmental damage done by the the timber harvest industry but i do need to say this the timber harvest industry today is nothing like it was then uh, their practices are environmentally sustainable uh, and 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 are done with an eye towards protecting uh, watersheds and and not just watersheds, lands as well. Um, so so yeah, I guess the the biggest one of the biggest things that I I hope we've learned is that left to our own devices, we can do a lot of damage in a hurry. Uh, so it it's it's always good to step back, take a breath, and think about what the unintended consequences of our of our actions might be. That's probably good advice for anybody anywhere. <laughs> Natural yeah. resources related or not. Um, I mean, back then there probably was no fishing regulations either. So, you know, people could just go there and take as many fish as they wanted. And now we do have regulations on all of our species pretty much. Right. Right. And you know, there's some there's there's some historic photos that 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 show just literally piles of of uh grayling on on the on the banks. Uh because they're when they're biting, 
they're biting. I'm sure it was fun, but it was not good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So so one thing I do want to mention, too, for for any of of uh, of the folks that that are considering fishing these lakes where we stock them, mm-hmm. uh, they should be aware that grayling are fairly sensitive to handling stress. Okay. Uh, and it's it's awesome that we're providing this opportunity, but but people should be aware. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned already that that there is no harvest opportunity. It's all catch an immediate release. Uh, I would encourage them to not even take the fish out of the water if they can. Keep them in the water and remove them from the hook as quickly as possible. And even encourage using um, barbless hooks uh, if they're going to fly fish. You know, pinch that barb down, or if they're throwing a spinner, especially mm-hmm. uh, you know with a treble on it, please yeah. pinch that barb down because they're. Um, the, a lot of damage can be done trying to get them get them unhooked. Um, barbless hooks help with that a lot. Okay, good point. Out that way it gives more people opportunity and it's not depleting the the that little fishery. Absolutely, right away. Yep, yep. And the numbers I talked about those aren't big numbers. Oh. You know, three hundred in Pentagor and four hundred in West Johns and only eleven hundred in 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 Pine Lake. I mean, it's probably not even at the carrying capacity for what you could put in those lakes, but limited numbers of fish available to, to, uh, to be distributed around. So being careful with them as a, as a hopefully reusable resource would be a, would be a great thing. Right. Right. And I'm sure people go there just because they've never seen one and obviously never caught one. So yeah. they're just excited for the opportunity to see, to see. Them. You bet. You bet. And you know, one of the, one of the things to be aware of too is, is, you know, fish tend to, stocked fish tend to be, highly susceptible to angling pressure soon after they're, you know, immediately after they're, they're stocked. takes them a little while to get their bearings, mm-hmm. you know, kind of disperse from the stocking site and figure out, okay, I got this down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's something for folks to keep in mind too. And we would ask they, they exercise some, some restraint, you know, in, in future stocking efforts to not, not go immediately after the fish have been stocked to try and target them, but rather give them a little bit of time to, to get their wits about them. Today's Discover the UP podcast is brought to you by Hardcore Outfitters of Iron Mountain. Hardcore Outfitters strives to promote and instill an enjoyment of the outdoors for all ages and individuals. Whether you're already an avid outdoors person who enjoys the thrill of the hunt or newly learning the art of archery, sharpen your skills at their indoor archery range and check out their line of products from Matthews, Hoyt, Bear, Raven, Centerpoint, Tenpoint, and Wicked Ridge. If being on the water drives your passion and has you hooked, they have an impressive selection of year-round fishing gear, plus a full-service bait shop and the largest selection for fly fishing the UP. Go to Hardcore Outfitters in Iron Mountain, tell them I sent you, and discover what outdoor hobby or adventure awaits you. So I'm currently working on another story about endangered species in the UP. So I asked Ed if there are any other fish species that we should be concerned about. You know, I, nothing really jumps out at me. I mean, there's, there's, you know, all the, all the usual things of concern, the, the, uh, the climate change stuff that's happening, you know, and trying to figure out, you know, what's 20, 30, 50 years from now, what are we looking at as far as temperature regimes? It's anybody's guess, obviously. I mean, you're trying to trying to guess what's happening way out in the future. It could very well be that that uh, things may reverse some for some reason that we're not aware of at this point. You know, whether it's because we get a handle on on uh, the 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 amount of uh, fossil fuel use that's happening worldwide, or or some other thing. I mean, it's so cyclic uh, with with climate that uh, you know eventually we know it's going to swing. Or we expect it will swing back the other way, but 
but th- but that's one that's on our mind for sure. It's especially on our mind with this this grayling program. You know, we're entering into this into this uh, uh, initiative. Uh, you know, putting these this cold water species into a uh, into these cold water systems, knowing that we're facing the challenges associated with climate uh, change, and and that's that seems a little counterintuitive, but one of the things that you, you need to keep in mind with that is that the streams that we're looking at have tr- uh, significant groundwater input. So there's a lot of groundwater that flows like spring water that comes up from the, basically through the bottom of the streams that kind of moderates their temperatures and keeps them on the cold or at least the cool side. Mm-hmm. So spring fed streams are, you know, kind of not immune, I guess, to the climate change, but they're definitely... Yeah, they're not immune by a long shot. And I suppose over time, if things continue on the way they're going, even groundwater temperatures are going to mm-hmm. potentially um, start to warm. But that will be a much slower process than than the surface water temperature uh, changes that we see. I mean, they're not immune, but they're they've got a, a, another level of protection, you know, and and, and the, the better we can do when it comes to uh, habitat um, protection uh, and improvement, you know, making sure that we that we keep. Uh, uh, that, that that we maintain uh, vegetation buffers along the streams so that the, they, they provide shade, something as simple as providing shade. Uh, dam removals would go a long way. I mean, we could make some significant advancements in in fighting uh, warming stream temperatures by, by removing some key dams. I mean, dams can, you know, they certainly can in some instances provide some, some good fishing opportunities, but they also... Um, there's no there's no arguing it they cause the water temperatures to to uh, increase uh, so and they tend to dam up the the most high gradient streams you know usually dams are in place for for or often are in place for uh hydropower uh, generation uh, and and uh, your best generation is going to be in those high gradient stretches of streams uh, so so that's that's also the best habitat for for uh, salmonids for trout, so you know we're we're hoping to see more and more dams uh, come out as time goes by. And that's what I was saying. But I was going to ask you is like you know obviously we you know to keep species off of any sp- sort of list endangered or special concern. I mean, what can the general public do to just you know help? Yeah, you know, and that's that's a tough one. I mean, the, supporting legislation that that is. You know, common sense legislation that that helps with uh, with uh, the warming climate that we have. You know, and encouraging um, land managers and 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 uh, uh, legislators to support things like uh, dam removals. You know, the big thing with dam removals, it's crazy expensive uh, to to pull a dam out. You don't just pull boards out. I mean, you have to take the structures out, and and that's expensive stuff to do. Uh, so so the more support there is from the from the legislature, the more financial support there is for that sort of thing, the um, the, the more benefit our, our aquatic uh, ecosystems will see. And hence, the more benefit our, our anglers will see. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for your time. And You bet. Happy to do it. It's an exciting program to talk about. It's easy to talk about. I'm actually <laughs> headed this uh, Saturday to the Ironfish Distillery in Thompsonville oh. Um, oh, nice. to do, do a couple of... Uh, presentations there they i don't know if you heard heard about this before but they're they're one of our donors uh, one of our partner groups that support us and they um they released maybe it was two years ago uh, an arctic grayling bourbon 
Um, <laughs> and the proceeds from that went, uh, they put into a, a, an account with the Manistee uh, Community Foundation and and used it to fund some of the research that was going on at Michigan State. And, and Saturday, they're releasing their Arctic Grayling Rye. Um, so I'm going to do another presentation there. And again, the proceeds from that will, will be available for um, future research that's happening related to the program. So it's kind of a cool thing. Yeah, it's an interesting, it's really cool to see partnerships like that of Michigan businesses. And yeah, you know, and, and, and this has been this particular endeavor, it caught fire. I mean, we started talking about this back in casually in 2015 and 2016, the partnership officially formed and we had instantly, we had over 40 uh, partners and everybody was excited about it. We've got, we've got different, um, um, foundations that are donating significant uh, funds the the consumers energy foundation the um the the wenger foundation um they they're literally donating hundreds of thousands of dollars towards towards supporting this program uh, the little river band of ottawa indians kicked in a hundred thousand dollars towards the uv filter uh, that needed to be installed at, at odin it's just it, there's there's something about this idea of bringing grayling back that lights a fire under people um, and there's a there's a young fella Oh, I can't remember his name now. It's a very Irish name. He was, I think, a fourth grader, maybe, down in the in the Royal Oak area. And he heard about this program. And so for his birthday, he said, I don't want anything for my birthday. I want you know money to to donate towards that. And then he enlisted the help of his his mom and his uncle. His uncle makes is a graphic artist, so they made t-shirts and they went on this fundraiser and I think he's raised over $5,000 to contribute towards this. I mean, he's like an eight year old kid, eight or nine year old kid. Uh, it's just a really, really cool thing. It's just something that when people get interested in it, they're, they're passionate about it. That's really interesting. Yeah. Oh, I love cool when stuff. kids get involved. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, you know, you know, another thing too, if you're, if you're uh, of such a mind to do so, if you go to our, our um, website, which is, um, www.migrailing.org. Um, you can you can see uh, uh, the the most recent news, things that are going on, oh. and if you if you navigate around in there, you will find a link to a video that was put together by I'm trying to think of the name of the, the the high school down in Troy, Troy Athens High School, I think that's the name of it, and and it's a it, there was a videography class and. Under the direction of a of a staff person, they did a documentary on our effort, and they they entered it in contests, and I think they took like second place in a national contest for for a wow. high school documentary, uh, and they just did a fantastic job. And I don't just say that because they interviewed me in it, but there's a <laughs> there's a there's a link to the to the uh, documentary, and it it does a a really good job of telling the history of of Grayling in Michigan and up to that point where we were at with the program. Oh, that's awesome too. That's right up my alley as well. <laughs> there you go. I, I would really encourage you to check that out. They just did. I was so impressed with the job that they did. They were just, it was like it was professionally done. I haven't checked out that documentary yet, but it is on my to-do list. So again, I took some creative liberties with this story on a UP themed podcast, but I hope you enjoyed it and learned something new. So thanks for listening and stay tuned for future episodes of the Discover the UP podcast.